welcome to CMI-TV. I'm Rob Congdon, Director of Congdon Ministries International, and today we're going to look at that final in our feast series, the Jubilee. Now, our family loves jigsaw puzzles. We spend hours finding just that right piece. Rather than a frustration, we find it very satisfying to fit all those pieces together. We always start in the same way. First, we put the pieces with the straight edges that make up the border of the puzzle. Once they are fitted into place, we move on to the areas in between the borders. Inevitably, there's some area with missing pieces. We look at the remaining pieces and say, how can they fit? Or maybe there aren't enough. Now, over the last 20 years, I've been able to put together many of the pieces of the feast puzzle. Yet there was a time where there remained a part of the puzzle with three missing pieces. Now, whenever I taught Leviticus 23, I was always very careful to avoid verse 3 of Leviticus 23. It reads, Six days shall work be done, but the seventh day is the Sabbath of rest, a holy convocation. Ye shall do no work therein. It's the Sabbath of the Lord in all your dwellings. <laughs> Clearly, this verse refers to the Sabbath in relation to the creation account of Genesis and the weekly Sabbath. So I felt that it belonged back in Genesis, not in Leviticus. Now, have you ever noticed how expositors often quickly pass over verses for which they have no explanation? I too have been guilty of this. For me, Leviticus 23 verse 3 was a puzzle piece from some other puzzle. So I placed it aside with two other pieces that just didn't seem to fit. A second of those pieces that didn't fit was the eighth day of the Feast of Tabernacles. Some writers include it as part of the feast, while others claim that it's part of a separate concurrent feast. Who's right? The problem remained unanswered until I found how this eighth piece fit the Leviticus 23 puzzle. And the third crucial piece turned up one day when a pastor in the Bahamas called me and asked me to tell him about the Jubilee and the way in which it fits in with the feasts? <laughs> I told him, no, 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 no. It's a separate event. He replied, check your context. Much to my embarrassment, he was right. A study of the context of the Jubilee, that's Leviticus chapter 25, and the feast, Leviticus 23, showed that they did, in fact, belong together. What a surprise for me. I had missed this connection for years. Now I could put all three pieces into my puzzle and see that total finished picture of the Feast of Israel. Now I would like to show you how they fit together. begin with the first puzzle piece that did not seem to fit in our puzzle, that creation piece. 
In Leviticus chapter 23 and verse 2, God tells us, he says, Moses, speak unto the children of Israel and say unto them concerning the feast of the Lord. You see, this verse introduces the entire biblical chapter of the instructions for the seven feasts of the Lord. Yet the very next verse, verse 3, appears to regress back to Genesis 2.2, for we read there, Six days shall work be done, but the seventh day is the Sabbath of rest and holy convocation. You shall do no work therein. It is the Sabbath of the Lord in all your dwellings. And then verse 4 goes back to the feasts. These are the feasts of the Lord, even holy convocations, which ye shall proclaim in their seasons. See, apparently verse 3, which was does not even mention the feast, must be a puzzle piece from another puzzle. As I studied it, I wondered if God had gone off on a tangent. In order to find this piece's place in our puzzle, we need to recall the purposes of the feasts in the Bible. In our first video on the feast series, I taught that the feasts picture either a past or a future mountaintop experience for national Israel for all feasts, and they were directly would tie into Israel's history. Additionally, each feast pictures a great spiritual truth or doctrine of God as he deals with mankind in general. The puzzling part of Leviticus 23, the first four verses, is that the passage gives the impression that God is speaking of two subjects, creation and the feasts. Since the creation came well before the creation of the nation of Israel and God's instituting its feasts, the creation part's presence in this passage creates the same effect as a casual reference to the Garden of Eden would create in a book we're reading about chemistry and physics. Garden of Eden? It seems out of place in a context that focuses upon Israel's national history. Now, at this point, I came up with this question. If the teaching of the feast leads to the end of this age, as I showed in our video on the Feast of Tabernacles, could the feasts also point back to the beginning of history as well? <laughs> yes, they do. God does, in fact, use the feasts to teach a significant truth that was instituted in the Garden of Eden. This truth comes out in Acts chapter 3, verses 19 to 21. So Acts 3, 19 to 21. Repent, therefore, said Peter, and be converted, that your sins may be blotted out when. Now that when really means so that the times of refreshing shall come from the presence of the Lord, and he shall send Jesus Christ, which was before preached unto you, whom the heaven must receive until the time of restoration of all things, which God had spoken by the mount of all his holy prophets since the world began. You see, here at the temple, Peter discusses Israel's national rejection of the Messiah in Acts 3, verses 12 through 18. He then extends the opportunity for Israel to repent and be converted, verse 19. In doing this, Peter makes four important points. 
first of all, it's the repentance of the nation as a whole of Israel that will enable the times of refreshing to come. For the phrase, when the times of refreshing shall be come, should be so that the times of refreshing can come. Why? Why should it be so that? Well, you see, of the 50 times in the Bible, the Greek word so that or when is translated into the English. It is always that or so that except in this one single verse in our English translation of Acts 3, where it's translated when. So therefore, the predominant translation of the Greek word that we've translated when should be so that. Secondly, such refreshment will come, notice, from the presence of the Lord. Notice very carefully, this is speaking of a future time in Israel's history when God will bring the restoration of all things to Israel and to the earth. Thus, in Peter's day, the times of refreshing are still future. And presently, since Jesus Christ is at the right hand of the Father in heaven, Acts 7.55, they are still future for us. Thirdly, according to Acts chapter 3, verse 20, the times of refreshing will come when God the Father sends Jesus Christ back to the earth. That's the second coming of the Lord, which is still future. Fourthly, we note that God says that the second coming has been prophesied, notice, since the world began. We cannot ignore the fact that Peter's statement links the consummation of the age, the second coming, with the creation just as the feasts apparently do in our verses 2 to 4 in our feast passage. So with our understanding of the times of refreshing, we find that Peter is not the first to speak of a future time of refreshment to God's people. In looking back at the scriptures, we find that twice God speaks of refreshment with respect to the weekly Sabbath in the Old Testament. Additionally, Peter tells us that this concept was taught by the holy prophets. When we look at this phrase in literature outside of the Bible, the refreshment concept, it's often used in a future apocalyptic concept. Thus, Peter's use of times of refreshment is a clear reference to the apocalyptic millennial kingdom foretold by many of the prophets and pictured by the Feast of Tabernacles. As we've seen in this series on the feasts, I believe the feasts are part of God's teaching of the progression of his plan for humanity and history. So with this piece in place in our puzzle, we see that creation plays a significant part in understanding the feasts. While Israel is in view with respect to the feasts, their purpose of portraying man's spiritual journey from salvation to eternity with God certainly began with the garden. And God wants us to remember that by including that with the feasts. Having looked at the first piece, let's now look at our second puzzle piece that appears not to fit. ¶¶ 
We have now seen how the first puzzle piece links creation to the feast. We now have to consider our second puzzle piece that appears not to fit in our puzzle. It is the mysterious eighth day of the Feast of Tabernacles. Students of the feast have long debated about the apparent conflict in Leviticus 23 verses 34, 36, and 39, where we read, Speak unto the children of Israel, saying, The fifteenth day of the seventh month shall be the Feast of Tabernacles for seven days unto the Lord. Seven days ye shall offer an offering made by fire unto the Lord. On the eighth day shall be a holy convocation. Also in the fifteenth day of the seventh month you shall keep a feast unto the Lord seven days. On the first day shall be a Sabbath, and on the eighth day shall be a Sabbath. Do you catch that? Seven days you'll observe it. On the eighth day, what? How can the Lord specifically speak of a seven-day observance unto the Lord in verse 34, and then apparently add an eighth day in verse 39? Well, it seems that God specifies the feast unto the Lord seven days, but in the very next verse, he talks about this eighth day, making us wonder, is it part of the Feast of Tabernacles or not part of it? How can the Lord specifically speak of a seven-day observance unto the Lord in verse 34, and then apparently add an eighth day in verse 39? It seems that God specifies the feast unto the Lord seven days, but the very next verse, he brings in this eighth day. It makes us wonder, is this eighth day part of the Feast of Tabernacles or not part of it? And why does it just drop in? Well, the resolution of this, what they call 7-8 dilemma, is to see the eighth day as linked closely to the Feast of Tabernacles and at the same time representing two separate events. We think back on the feasts, and after all, the Feast of Unleavened Bread and the Feast of First Fruits are two distinct events, yet they share part of the same period of time for its observances. You'll recall that Unleavened Bread pictured the 40 years of wilderness wandering, and it ended by the entrance into the Promised Land at the Feast of First Fruit. In other words, they came one right after the other. And the wilderness wandering actually prepared for the entry into the promised land at the Feast of First Fruit. So they were two different events, but practically shared the same time slot. Could the eighth day of tabernacles be a separate event that begins immediately after the thousand-year millennium and perhaps be the result of the millennium? serve in just the same way as we saw unleavened bread and feast of first fruits come together. A brief review of our last three feasts of the Lord, those in the seventh month, help us to decide if this is the correct solution to our puzzle. So recall, the Feast of Trumpets was on the first day of the seventh month. It signaled the beginning of the tribulation period, which would last seven years. 
the Day of Atonement on the tenth day of the seventh month signaled the return of the Lord to cleanse the nation of Israel at the end of the tribulation, which had begun with the Feast of Trumpets. The Feast of Tabernacles, running from the 15th through the 21st day of the seventh month, signals the millennial peace of the Messiah's thousand-year reign, which follows right after the Day of Atonement. Since these last three feasts in the seventh month all link prophetic events at the end of this age, we would expect the eighth day to be part of them, yet distinct in its teaching and purpose. Since the millennium is the last event of this age and with its ending immediately begins a new age, the new age of the new heavens and earth, described by Peter in his second letter, in Second Peter chapter 3, verses 10, where we read, But the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night, in the which the heavens shall pass away with a great noise, and the elements shall melt with fervent heat, and the earth also and the works that are therein shall be burned up. Recall from our last video that the opening Sabbath of the Feast of Tabernacles, that's Leviticus 23, verse 39, beautifully pictures the beginning of the unprecedented peace and calm for the earth and its inhabitants for a thousand years better known as the millennium. Yet, when we read in Revelation 20, verses 1 through 3, it speaks of a final rebellion by Satan and by his human followers upon the earth at the end of the millennium, the thousand-year period. You see, sadly, even the millennium will have a rebellion at its end. For sin has not yet been completely banished from the earth. It would take one more event to separate this earth's history from God's eternal plan for all who have received his Son. Biblically, only the new heavens and new earth brings total, perfect peace without sin and rebellion. Thus, the last or eighth-day Sabbath of Leviticus 23, verse 39, could picture this perfect peace, this sinless peace that will come with the new heavens and the new earth. Now, taking this interpretation answers another question with reference to the teachings of the Feast of Tabernacles. That found in Deuteronomy 16, you'll recall that Deuteronomy 16 was an additional teaching about the Feast of Tabernacles. So looking at Deuteronomy 16, verse 13, uh, as we study it about tabernacles, we find that Deuteronomy 16 only mentions seven days for the Feast of Tabernacles. It ignores the eighth day or never even mentions it. Well, the answer is that the observance of the feasts in Deuteronomy 16, including tabernacles, all dealt with the agricultural aspect of the seven feasts, including that of the Feast of Tabernacles. Also, with the closing or ending of tabernacles, it represented the end of the harvest year, with no further harvest to follow until the next year. Thus, we would expect that anything picturing the new earth would not deal with the harvest, 
particularly as we noted in our Tabernacles video, the picture of this feast, Tabernacles, is both a harvest of the land, but significantly a spiritual harvest of souls for the Lord. This lack of mention of the eighth day in Deuteronomy tells us that there is no further spiritual harvests to come. For those living in the new heavens and new earth, they'll only be those people who have been delivered from their sins by the shed blood of the Lord Jesus Christ, and they are now righteous. Once again, we see that the seven feasts pictures God calling out a people beginning at creation and continuing until the end of this age. His people are now ready at the end of the age to enter the new age, this is the righteous people, that of eternity, where they will share fellowship with God in the new heavens and earth. Thus, we have fit in the second puzzle piece, for the eighth day is actually picturing the new heavens and new earth the way God originally planned. We must now find how the last puzzle piece of Leviticus 23 fits into our total picture of the feasts of the Lord. The third and final piece of our puzzle focuses upon a phrase that is seldom used in our Bible, yet it's full of significance. We can discover this by comparing two verses in Leviticus 23 that are related to the Feast of Tabernacles. In verse 39, God declares the first day and the eighth day as a Sabbath, or in the Hebrew, a Sabbathon, that literally means Sabbath rest. Now this word is the emphatic form of Sabbath and rest. When we compare this back with verse 36, we notice that God makes a distinction with the eighth day. He calls it a solemn assembly. Comparison of these two verses show that the first day of the feast is a Sabbath rest and a holy convocation in both verses. But the eighth day is a Sabbath rest, a holy convocation, and a solemn assembly. He distinguishes between a holy convocation and a solemn assembly. They're not the same thing. They are two distinct aspects to the eighth day. A holy convocation is a time where we gather for worship, something we do on Sunday. So we have a holy convocation on Sunday. But in all nine uses of solemn assembly, in the Old Testament, it means a closing or a completion at the end of several times of worship. Further, it was used that way of the last Sabbath of the Feast of Unleavened Bread, which also was a seven-day feast. It's interesting, if we look at the Hebrew Torah commentary, we note that the Septuagint, now that's a Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament. It was written before the days of Christ. It renders this word solemn assembly, exodion, from which we derive the English words exodus and exit which means a finale, a recessional, at the end of several times of gathering. Therefore, solemn close or finale is probably the best translation for our English text 
of solemn assembly. If we accept this interpretation of the expression, the last Sabbath, the one on the eighth day of the Feast of Tabernacles, is a finale or has a exiting aspect, it's very important to understand this unique aspect of the eighth day Sabbathon. Again, this expression Sabbathon now, Sabbath of rest, occurs only six times in the Bible. It's found twice in Exodus. It speaks of the law concerning the observance of the seventh day weekly Sabbath. The remaining four occurrences occur here in Leviticus. There appears a connection with the law that requires the Sabbath arrest on the Day of Atonement, the Feast of Tabernacles, and the Jubilee. And, of course, Leviticus 23, verse 3, that talks about the creation in the seven days. We conclude from these instances that the Bible employs this phrase in just two contexts, the feasts and the six days of work followed by one day of rest, the Sabbathon. We can better understand this limited use of Sabbath of rest by looking at the 116 uses of the simple form Sabbath. The root word of Sabbath, Shabbat, means to cease, desist, and rest. As we might expect, this word makes its first appearance in Genesis chapter 2 and verses 2 and 3, where we read, And on the seventh day God ended his work which had he had made, and he rested Shabbat on the seventh day from all his work which he had made. And God blessed the seventh day and sanctified it. God uniquely sanctifies or sets apart the seventh day and uses it to picture the day on which he rested. Well, a better term is the sense of completion. For the Hebrew word means completion, end of a project, or the finish. Literally, it means to bring to an end, as in Genesis 8.22 shows, where it says, While the earth remaineth, seed time and harvest, and cold and heat, and summer and winter, day and night shall not cease meaning shall not come to an end, or Shabbat. Further examples are found in Jeremiah 31.36 and Job 32.1. In Genesis chapter 2 and verse 2, the scriptures record that after six days of creative effort, God brought his work to an end or completion. Although many say that God allowed the creation to evolve over billions of years, the Hebrew text of Genesis 1 doesn't allow for anything other than a literal six-day period. If you're questioning that, you should look at the book The Genesis Fled by Dr. John Whitcomb for a full discussion on this subject. In all of the debate about the various evolutionary and creationist theories, we have missed a far more significant question. Why did God take six days to create everything? After all, God could have created it in an instant. The only satisfactory answer is that God intentionally extended the creation period to six days in order to teach a lesson. Some see the establishment of the six days of labor followed by one of rest, the pattern, as a means to help man in his daily life. Now, I think that's true. However, 
such an interpretation centers upon man rather than God, which is clearly a faulty theological perspective, for all things exist for God's glory and purposes. Thus, the key to full understanding lies in the fundamental meaning of Sabbath, an ending or bringing to an end. Having completed creation, God brought his creative work to an end or completion. The seventh day memorializes the completion of God's purpose of creation. Certainly it does not memorialize or teach that God was tired and required rest after his work. Unlike man, God is never tired or weary. But you see, God is beyond that. Nothing, creation, could not tire or weary our God. For Isaiah 40, verse 28 says, Hast thou not known? Hast thou not heard? The everlasting God, the Lord, the creator of the ends of the earth, he fainteth not, neither is weary. Back to the Sabbath. According to the evidence that the Sabbath of creation and Leviticus 23, 3, Sabbath are connected is the fact that God gave the regularly weekly Sabbath as an intentional sign to the nation of Israel. For in Exodus 31, verses 16 and 17, we read, Wherefore the children of Israel shall keep the Sabbath to observe the Sabbath throughout their generations, for it's a perpetual covenant. It is a sign between me and the children of Israel forever. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, and on the seventh day he rested or ceased and was refreshed. Exodus 31, 16 through 17. But now hold it. I've just said God doesn't get tired or fatigued. So there seems to be a dilemma in this verse because it says that he rested and was refreshed. Unfortunately, just after we banish the idea that God needed to rest due to the fatigue of creating, we encounter this term suggesting the reverse. God says that he was refreshed on the seventh day. What is the solution? Well, the Hebrew term for refreshed is napash, meaning to be satisfied. Much like the sigh of contentment that follows the completion of a completed task. Like the artist who, after completing a beautiful painting, steps back, feels satisfied with the quality of his work, and he goes, Ah, it really, I'm satisfied with what I have created. He's not fatigued. He's satisfied. So God looked upon his creation and he was satisfied. And what did he say? It was good. The conclusion then, God speaks through the weekly Sabbath to show man that the original created universe was completed by him, was beautiful, and was precisely the way he wanted it to be. There was no sin then, and the earth was in total harmony with all of creation. Man being created, he was created to glorify God and enjoy him forever in this perfect universe. After God fulfilled his purpose of creation, he ceased from creating and he savored its existence. However, sin entered this perfect world and so necessitated God's process of redemption reconciliation, and restoration back to the perfect or endemic state. 
over and over, history shows that man will destroy God's creation through his rebellion. The only solution to the problem lay in God's offering salvation by sending his own son into the world to redeem man. His son, Jesus Christ, became the substitute lamb and died at Passover, the first feast. Through Jesus Christ's death and resurrection, Christ has brought full reconciliation. His rising from the dead demonstrated that the wages of sin were paid and that God's justice was satisfied. This means now existed a restoration potential to the endemic state as originally planned by God. One day, Jesus Christ will return to rule and reign upon a restored earth as the King of Kings at the millennium. At the present moment, we live between the days of Jesus Christ's resurrection, pictured in the Feast of First Fruits, and the day of his return, the Day of Atonement, and the Millennial Kingdom, the Feast of Tabernacles. Thus, the Sabbath is God's message to Israel and to mankind of the return to the true time for man's rest in a perfect environment created by God alone. To Israel, the message says, God's not done. You're in the sixth day, but the seventh day of rest is coming. To the church, it explains that God's plan is not yet complete until Jesus Christ gathers her, his entire bride, to him. And he'll gather her at his coming to catch up the bride at the rapture. For the earth, it's still suffering from Adam's sin and requires restoration to the perfect state. For Paul tells us in Romans 8, verse 22, For we know that the whole creation groaneth and travaileth in pain together until now. But there is a day coming when the earth and heavens will be restored to their original state, the one in which God felt refreshed, one free of sin. The weekly Sabbath pictures God's promise of a coming restoration and reassures us that God's plan stills marching on. Having three pieces, we are now ready to complete our feast puzzle picture. As we place the last three puzzle pieces into our puzzle, the picture becomes complete and reveals God's ultimate goal, a restoration back to the garden through the creation of the new heavens and new earth. Our first puzzle piece linked God's creation with the feasts, revealing God's ongoing plan and purpose of history to create a people who would choose of their own free will to righteously serve him. Our second puzzle piece introduced the eighth day of the feast to reveal that a final event was necessary to accomplish this purpose of God. Our third puzzle piece indicated that this final event would bring a true rest from sin and struggles of the age before the eternal age. With all three pieces in our puzzle, we're now able to see for the first time the total picture. From creation to the end of the millennium, God has been gathering a people who chose to accept God's plan of salvation and deliverance, 
who chose to spend eternity in God's service and as a result to know true joy, peace, and rest, free from sin, from rebellion, and all the evils of the previous age. For we who know the Lord as our Savior, we will be able to express the sigh of refreshment that God experienced when he created the world. The feast pictured these steps to this eventuality. Salvation and deliverance came through the blood of a substitute lamb pictured in the feast of Passover. Sanctification in three stages was completed for the delivered one pictured in the feast of unleavened bread. A glorified body equipped for eternity with God was achieved through the resurrection pictured in the feast of first fruit. The union of both Jewish and Gentile believers who would serve God eternally was pictured in the Feast of Pentecost. The restoration of God's beloved Israel will be accomplished by Israel's return to covenant worship at the start of the tribulation pictured in the Feast of Trumpets. The cleansing of the nation of Israel from its national sin pictured also as individuals cleansing from sin was made possible by the cleansing blood and acceptance of Jesus Christ as one Savior, pictured in the Day of Atonement. God's final step was to remind us that under the best possible conditions on the earth, with, an almost, with a perfect government and an almost perfect environment, our life on earth is still a temporary residence. And only when we are with him in a glorified eternal state are we truly home pictured in the Feast of Tabernacles. As we step back and look at our puzzle, we find a surprise. All the pieces reveal a fuller picture of what God has accomplished individually in us and what that means in term of eternity in the new heavens and new earth. That eighth day peace enables us to understand the link of Leviticus 23 to chapter 25, the Jubilee. As commanded in chapter 25, we see that after six years of harvest, the land is allowed to be rest, to rest for one year, the sabbatical year. Thus, when the Jubilee comes, a citizen of the country had to place their total dependence upon God since the Jubilee was preceded by the sabbatical year of rest. For the Jewish farmer, this means that he would not see a harvest until the Jubilee year ended. Consequently, the Lord had to provide three years of food until the next harvest. For we read in Leviticus chapter 25, verses 8 through 13. And thou shalt number seven Sabbaths of years unto thee. Then thou shalt cause the trumpet of the jubilee to sound on the tenth day of the seventh month. In the day of atonement shall ye make the trumpet sound throughout the land, and ye shall hallow the fiftieth year, and proclaim liberty throughout all the land. In the year of jubilee you shall return every man unto his possession. For the individual who was forced to sell their land before the jubilee year, needing funds, this meant that at the Jubilee, the land was returned to him, according to Leviticus 25 and verses 23 to 28. For it tells us, If thy brethren be waxen poor, hath sold away some of his possessions, then that which is sold shall remain in the hand of him that hath bought it until the year of Jubilee, 
and in the jubilee it shall go out and he shall return unto his possession. This jubilee return of land is a picture that reflects the loss of the earth to Satan's rule following Adam's sin. With the end of Satan's rebellion and the casting of him into the lake of fire at the end of the millennium, the ownership of the land is to be returned to the Lord Jesus Christ. Furthermore, on the Jubilee, slaves are to be released and captives freed, Leviticus 25, verse 41, which not only will be a fitting reminder of God's deliverance of Israel from Egypt, verse 42, and the but the universal deliverance of those freed from their sins by the Lord Jesus Christ. God concludes his instruction for the Jubilee by reminding Israel that, For unto me the children of Israel are servants. They are my servants, whom I brought forth out of the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. Quick review. Every year the farmer planted his land. At the end of the sixth year, he was then to give the land rest for one year. That was called a sabbatical. But then, after seven sabbatical cycles, came the jubilee, the 50th year, that would return the land to its proper owner, that would free all the captives eternally. The jubilee pictures the final complete restoration of the earth and the heavens to the state that God originally intended until man sinned. Once again, God wanted to sigh that sound of refreshment with his new heavens and earth. Then God will be finished with the old age, for we read in Revelation chapter 21, reading verse 1 and skipping to verse 4 through 8, And I saw a new heaven, new earth, for the first heaven, the first earth were passed away. There was no more sea. And God shall wipe away all tears from their eyes. There shall be no more death, neither sorrow nor crying, neither shall there be any more pain, for the former things are passed away. And he that sat upon the throne said, Behold, I make all things new. And he said unto me, Write, for these words are true and faithful. And he said unto me, It is done. When all this is completed, God will sigh and say, It's done. I am Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end. I will give unto him that is the thirst of the fountain of the water of life freely. He that overcometh shall inherit all things. I will be his God, and he shall be my son. Just as the pilgrims of the Feast of Tabernacles, they would burn their temporary dwellings on the eighth day of the feast. The present heavens and earth will burn at the conclusion of the millennial kingdom. The time of transience in the wilderness of human experience will be over. The new heavens and the new earth will replace the old and will be as God first intended at the garden. Peter tells us in his second letter, chapter 3, verses 10 and 13, But the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night, in which the heavens shall pass away with a great noise, and the elements shall melt with fervent heat. The earth also and the works that are therein shall be burned up. Nevertheless, we, according to his promise, look for a new heaven and a new earth, wherein dwelleth righteousness. Then the puzzle will be clear to all men. 
As the first age ends and a new and beautiful one begins, God uses the nation of Israel to reveal his plan for history. Each feast pictures elements of that journey, not just for Israel, but also for each of us. If we accept God's path and his salvation, it will lead to the jubilee and the new heavens and the new earth. Like Adam, we too can walk and talk with God throughout eternity because God makes it possible. That's if we receive his free gift of eternal life by receiving the Lord Jesus Christ's sacrifice upon the cross to pay for our sins. If we ask him to be our savior, all of these future events wait us, not for our glory, but for his. For we are created for his good pleasure and will. Unfortunately, the very same passage that tells us of the new heavens and the new earth also speaks of judgment for those who reject the Lord Jesus Christ. We read, But the fearful and unbelieving and the abominable and the murderers, warmongers, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars shall have their part in the lake which burneth with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. Each individual must decide which fork in the path of life he will take. One leads to eternal rest with God, while the other leads to eternal death separated from God. The feast picture not just the history of a nation, not just the spiritual journey of man, but the span of history from Genesis 1-1 to Revelation 21-1, God's plan for history. With the conclusion of the feasts, man has the whole picture. Eternity waits. And Revelation 21 gives each of us a glimpse of things yet to come. We praise God that in his condensation to men, he gave such a beautiful picture through the feasts of the Lord. Will you be at that ultimate appointment with the Lord in eternity? You see, the Sabbath of rest now is just the end of the coming beginning. Now until our next video, may the Lord bless you mightily and we will see you either here or here.